0: We'll hear argument now on number 991434, the United States versus Mead Corporation. <coughs> Mr. Jones. Mr.
1: Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The harmonized tariff schedule employs more than 9,000 individual categories and more than half a million words to classify every conceivable article of commerce for tariff purposes. This massive document was drafted initially by an international commission, and in 1988, it was enacted in its entirety as a law of the United States. Two terms ago, in the Hager case, this court held that courts should defer to the reasonable interpretive regulations adopted by the Customs Service to implement these complex tariff provisions. In the present case, however, the Federal Circuit held that it would give no weight whatever to the interpretive rulings adopted by the Customs Service to apply the tariff provisions in, in specific situations under the very same statutory de- provisions. <clears throat> the Court, having concluded it would give no deference to the agency rulings, then held that the particular item involved in this case, known as a day planner, Uh, would not constitute a bound diary within the specific meaning of the tariff provision we have here before us. In our view, the Court's method of analysis and its ultimate classification determination are both incorrect. In enacting the harmonized tariff schedule, Congress specified that its understanding and intent that the Customs Service would be responsible for interpreting and applying these provisions. And for that purpose, Congress gave broad and varied types of interpretive authority to the agency. Uh, in particular, in 19 U.S.C. 1502, Congress provided that the agency could adopt rules and regulations for the classifications of goods under the tariff schedules. And it was under that provision that this court applied Chevron and Hager to say that reasonable interpretations of ambiguous provisions set forth in, 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 tre- in regulations should be applied by the courts. Now, Congress understood, however, that the regulations alone would not be sufficient to address the Infinite myriad of small interpretive problems that arise under this kind of tariff legislation. And so Congress specified and gave authority to the agency to adopt binding interpretive rules for the purpose of applying the statute in these discrete situations.
2: Mr. Jones, there is kind of a curious feature, uh, as I understand it, if uh, a case on a tariff ruling were to go to the Court of International Trade. Yes. As I understand it, it engages in de novo review of the classification rulings?
1: I think the, we, we have used that expression in describing it, but as yes. the Court pointed out in Hager and as we have argued in these two cases, what really happens is there, there is a de novo fact-finding on the record made in the Court of International Trade. Do you
2: think that Court affords some kind of deference to the views of the Customs Service? And would it be some kind of deference to the ruling such as we have here?
1: Yeah, well, Hager also pointed out that what the court does is that in determining what the law is that it applies these facts to, it looks to the agency's interpretations, and we think it should look to the agency's rulings. And
2: you think that's clear? And what yes. kind of deference do they give it? Is it Chevron or something less?
1: Well, what they
2: so-called have... Skidmore. What, and what are you urging us is the proper?
1: Our, what we are urging you is that it is, it is the deference that the court described in Chevron, that is that you, that the court is to defer to the reasonable interpretations set forth in these binding rulings. In what, in, in the Nations Bank versus Variable Annuity case, the court described these as a deliberative conclusions set forth in the agency. But not adopted
2: after notice and comment. And so is there some lesser kind of difference, such as suggested in the Skidmore case?
1: Not in this context. I mean, let me point out that when we're talking about interpretive rulings, they they are routinely initiated by the importer themselves. The importer has ample opportunity to make comments on how they think this procedure should be, how the statute should be interpreted. And when the agency, if the agency adopts that interpretation and then somewhat other importer doesn't agree and they want to ask for a different ruling, they can submit and request an interpretive ruling. Well, how, and that's how, the, how does this differ from the Labor Department ruling in Christensen, which we said was not entitled to Chevron deference? In Christensen, the Court said that there was an informal opinion stated in a format that the Congress had not provided for official interpretations. Uh, Here we have a formal provision of Congress directing the agency to make these kinds of interpretive determinations and to make them
0: in a binding way. It was dictum in Christensen anyway, wasn't it? Didn't the court find that it wasn't a reasonable interpretation?
1: I I believe that's correct. The court concluded that it was not a, in the words of Skidmore, uh, entitled to any... uh, Uh, consideration because it wasn't uh, persuasive. Uh, But clearly the Court was of the view that it was not a reasonable interpretation. Mr. Jones,
3: could we just back up a bit? Your answer to Justice O'Connor about the Court of International Trade owing some deference to the customs rulings. Uh, As far as I recall, in this very case, although the Court of International Trade upheld the customs classification. there wasn 't one word that they said, so we don 't know from this case what position the Court of International Trade takes on this question
1: well his, historically, we know the court said that it would defer to reasonable interpretations of, of the of the service. but in th- this speci- you 're very right about the, the oddity of this specific issue the way it came up, and we addressed that at the petition stage. What happened was that when, when Hager was before this court, the United States did not press the lower court to apply what is now could be called Hager or Chevron deference because the Federal Circuit had said in Hager that it would give no weight to, to custom service interpretations. And so at the time the case was in the Court of International Trade, that court was not asked to give that type of deference to the agency's interpretation because that was the law of the circuit. Once this court reversed the, the circuit ruling in Hager, this, the Federal Circuit then addressed how the principles of Hager and Chevron
3: apply. That, that didn't happen until the case was in...
1: In the Federal Circuit. But I would it, point out... It, that Respondent has agreed, and we think it's clear, that the Court of International Trade applied the same definition of bound diary that the ruling sets forth.
3: May, may I ask you before we get to, to the specific ruling? You, you're asserting that there should be deference equivalent to Chevron deference. Yes. And yet, as I understand it, the two features of this would lead me to hesitate about that. One is that the vast majority of these rulings, as I understand it, are just you'll classify this, you'll classify that, with no reasons elaborated. And the other is that you don't have one decision maker, as you would have, say, for the EPA. Instead, you have decisions that are dispersed among 45 ports of entry.
1: Well, let me address the second point first. I think in Smiley versus Citibank, the court had a similar situation where there was a a subsidiary determination that was then reviewed by the headquarters office to result in a final agency determination, which is the process that we've gone through with respect to these rulings. And the court said, well, that doesn't result in a a change of view. It results in a a proper application of the agency's ruling process. Um, But with respect to the first point, The respondent says, well, there are 10,000 a year of these kinds of rulings made in the, in the head, in in the regional offices. Uh, in fact, we do not claim that there's, we don't, we are unaware of any of those rulings in which there would be what the court, in, in the opinion you authored for the court in the variable annuity case, called the deliberative conclusions. It is only the deliberative conclusions that set forth the actual interpretations of provisions that the court can look to. To defer to, it's not simply the result. And and in most of the simple tariff uh, entry issue determinations, of course, it's a very simplified procedure. It has to be because of the volume of transactions at issue. And those kinds of entry level port determinations are. Very simple. Uh, the trade bar association brief acknowledges they contain almost in every instance no discussion. They just contain a, uh, that sort of a statement that twelve apples come in as apples.
0: Can't you appeal that within the agency?
1: Yes, and, and the agency. Don't has you have
0: a, to appeal it within the agency before you go to court?
1: I don't believe you have to. I, you don't have the Asian, the, It's an election of the, of the importer whether he wants to, whether he, can ask, he can ask the headquarters for a ruling in the first instance. He can ask the headquarters to review a field determination.
0: And, and you'd say that uh, any ruling by the headquarters, either on review or as an original matter, is entitled to Chevron Democrats? That, that is correct. But to not, the extent, r- not the rulings that come out of the field and are not reviewed? As a practical matter, that's true,
1: but I would say that either of them would be entitled to deference to the extent they contain deliberative conclusions, and I'm just being finicky about that because, as a practical matter, the entry-level port determinations don't contain those kinds of...
0: Why is that? I mean, if it comes out of headquarters, it's obviously been been considered at a high level within the agency, and they say this is the answer. Why should we?
1: I think, as a practical matter, the, the agency would have no objection to a determination of that type. It's just all I'm addressing is the, lo- is the logical basis by which the court would reach such a determination. Well, but
0: I mean, if, if we're going to use that criterion, you see, I thought Chevron was just if it's, if it's an authoritative agency position, we defer to it. But if you're going to hang qualifications on that, that is, it has to be an authoritative agency position that is explicated in a, in a written opinion, you might as well add the the... the, the The Phillips that uh, that, that, uh, your your, your brother suggests, which is uh, uh, only those those rulings that are the product of formal Uh, rulemaking, the one is as logical to me as the other.
1: Well, I'm not. I think what I'm trying to describe and not doing a very good job at it is simply that it's up to what the ultimate question is: What did Congress intend? How did Congress intend the agency to function? The best evidence of that is is probably the agency's regulations pursuant to the authority that Congress gave the agency to provide for a binding ruling program. The agency's regulations specify that the port services rulings are precedential and binding, but they don't go on to say, because it's up to this court to say, the extent to which those precedential binding determinations are to be given deference by the courts. And all I was trying to say was that it seems to me that when this court has addressed interpretive rulings in prior cases like variable annuity, PBGC versus LTC, it has looked to the question of whether the agent, you can look to the interpretation expressed by the agency and find in it a reason. You you say that Christensen uh, was not an interpretive ruling? Not in the sense that we're using that term in this case. What Christensen was was a private correspondence that was sent. Well, a private correspondence by by, the Secretary of Labor, wasn't it? Well, actually, it was sent by the Wage and Hour Division of the Labor Department. But you wouldn't call that, I mean, those people are paid by the government. Right, but but I think what was the court's concern in Christensen was that there was no evidence that that was an official interpretation of the type that Congress had authorized the agency. to use to interpret the statute. Here we have a statute that expressly tells the agency to make these kinds of binding determinations, and the agency's done it just the way Congress said.
4: Well, could you go back for a second on that to the first question that Justice O'Connor put to you? And she said there's a statute that says, in effect, that the Court of International Trade is to review these things de novo, to which you replied, no, it's just reviewing matters of fact. My copy of the statute says nothing about matters of fact. What it says is the Court of International Trade shall make its determinations upon the basis of the record before the court. The importers tell us, the textile importers tell us, there's hardly ever a dispute of fact. You know, this is what it is. Everybody knows that. But almost all these things concern how you apply a tariff or it, to the facts and the customs trade bar tells us it, that if we set down the distinction you want to make between facts and application of the tariff this whole thing's unworkable because people would never be able to figure out or hardly ever what's going on which is which so that i seem to me a pretty strong argument that Justice O'Connor's initial characterization was right as opposed to the application of these tariffs. And I'd like you to respond to that. The function of the interpretive binding ruling program
1: is to make the system more workable by providing effective, advanced guidance. they
4: didn't say that was unworkable. What they said would be unworkable would be for the Court of International Trade to figure out, you know, is it a question of fact? Is it a determination of, of application of the tariff, et cetera? It's... This, I
1: believe the court has already addressed this very point in the Hager case. Chevron deference is about how you decide what the law is. There are other doctrines, burden of proof, presumption of regularity, that go about how you decide what facts are and how the facts apply to law. Chevron is simply a doctrine about how does a court decide what the law is. And in this case, the agency made a determination about legal issues and said what it believed a diary was, for example, or what it believed the law properly interpreted was bound for this purposes. Having made that legal determination, it's then up to the Court of International Trade to decide whether these facts represent such an item. Uh, Of course, the agency's uh, binding rulings state its own view of what the facts are and how they apply to these legal interpretations. But it's, that's what the Court of International Trade has the right to, to do de novo, to decide whether these facts fit within the legal determination, the legal interpretation that the agency has expressed in the binding ruling. Suppose, you,
5: suppose we were to hold It's uh, just that, like tax cases. Suppose, suppose we were to hold. Uh, that Chevron deference applies to regulations that are adopted under the EPA with notice and comment and that this does not qualify, um, but that this uh, ruling, uh, this determination, gets a Skidmore deference. Uh, do you think that uh, the courts would find that that's a meaningful difference? Uh, oh, this is this is just a Skidmore case, and therefore I can rule as follows. If it had been a Chevron case, well, I would have to rule it.
1: Addressing your practical question before, I, I do want to respond to your question about how this might be looked at. Your practical question is, does it make a difference? Yes, it makes a big difference okay. because if we, if you had the sort of sliding scale approach of, of the Skidmore doctrine, then no one would know until the end of the day what what. You know, how much uh, how, how effective the agency 's interpretation is, and the, the advantage of the Chevron approach, if you needed to look at it in a practical sense is that everyone knows at the outset what what the effectiveness of the agency 's interpretation is it 's to be upheld if it 's reasonable. Now, I would like to point out that this court has never held and would have to overrule several cases if it did now uh, that chevron deference requires that, that, the, that the agency have issued its regulation with notice and comment. There are cases in which this... I, I understand.
5: Okay. In, in, in one of your earlier responses, your first response, I think, to Justice O'Connor, you said, oh, no, Skidmore deference would be inappropriate. As a fallback position, if we say no Chevron deference, I assume you would urge some sort of Skidmore.
1: I, I would assume that if the court were to conclude that Chevron deference didn't apply, it would then conclude Skidmore was an appropriate formula to to look at this issue under.
5: But you say Skidmore is inappropriate in order to urge upon us the Chevron.
1: Deference. I don't really remember having used that phrasing. What I I think Chevron's analysis is appropriate. This court's applied it in other interpretive ruling situations, and only in that is, sense is Skidmore is, inappropriate.
3: Mr. Jones you said something very quickly, but I wanted to be sure I understood your position about tax rulings, um, revenue rulings, how do they compare to customs classifications? And if you could just, probably you made this clear already, you are not claiming deference for just stamped this, that. It's only when we have a reasoned decision as we do in this case. Okay. Okay.
1: With respect to revenue rulings, the history on this is sort of interesting, and it'll take me a minute to explain it all. In the United States versus Carell, this court held that revenue rulings should be upheld when they're reasonable, and the court emphasized that it, that the, it was based on the expertise of the agency and the fact, that, and to quote the court, that it doesn't sit as a committee of revision to perfect the uh, uh, administration of the tax laws, that Congress told the agency to do that by authorizing them to issue all necessary rules and regs. Now, the tax counsel in Meakey says, no, that case was really about a regulation, not about a ruling. Well, that's simply and flatly clearly wrong. The regulation they cite had something to do with the procedures you used to make a claim for a deduction. When Justice Marshall was Solicitor General, he filed the government's brief in the Carell case. His successor, uh, Uh, Solicitor General uh, Griswold filed a reply brief. Neither of those briefs mention any regulation. They rely on the the revenue ruling of the service and ask the court to defer to it, which is what Justice Stewart's opinion for the court said was appropriate.
3: But that was pre-Chevron, so we don't know exactly what they meant by deference.
1: Well, we know exactly what they meant. If we, I mean, reading the opinion, it says that the, agent, that the agency's reasonable interpretation should be accepted. It was a pre-Chevron Chevron case. Well,
5: have we addressed this issue post-Chevron?
1: That's, that's what, where it became confusing, and, and there's a nomenclature shift that occurred that really hasn't been addressed. Prior to the 1960s, there were two kinds of rulings. There were Treasury decisions issued by the Secretary, and there were Commissioner's rulings that were published in what's called the Cumulative Bulletin. The cumulative bulletin pointed out before 1960 that the commissioner's rulings were not approved by the secretary, therefore they weren't binding on the agency. In 1961, the the commissioner was given interpretive authority in a regulation we've cited in our brief. And that interpretive authority is subject, however, to the approval of the secretary. And since that time, what are now called revenue rulings with a capital R are issued by the commissioner with the approval of the secretary. They are functionally the same as treasury decisions were before 1960. And in the cases before 1960, the court had pointed out treasury decisions were entitled to substantial deference. and, And even in Skidmore, the court pointed out they were often decisive. After Uh, Correll, I'm sorry, after Correll, and and indeed I think after Chevron, but in any event in that time frame, Justice Marshall wrote an opinion for the court, bringing this full circle, in which he said that a Treasury decision issued in connection with a customs ruling should be given, uh, should be accepted if it's reasonably, if it's sufficiently reasonable. Uh, That's the the way, that's why I pointed out that revenue rulings and, and Treasury decisions and customs interpretive rulings have followed a path that should lead to the same result
2: but here we're, we we get back to something you've already talked about which is a little curious as i understand it the customs maybe issues over 12,000 classification decisions annually and only some of them involve some kind of legal conclusion or explanation and you would say it's only the latter that deserve... deserve
1: I would say only to the extent that reference. they contain that kind of deliberative conclusion that the court...
2: But expresses. not these thousands of rulings that are issued year.
1: There isn't an interpretation stated in a ruling of the type they're talking about, which simply says an apple's an apple. Mr. And,
6: Mr. Jones, could I ask just one clarifying question? I'm having difficulty drawing the line between what it is the international... Uh, court has to do de novo and what is entitled to deference. And I thought you said that they're entitled to deference if they're <coughs> applying, they're deciding whether a particular item fits within the rule, whether a particular document, as we have here, is a diary or not. Why isn't that the very thing that's supposed to be decided de novo? Because
1: to decide that, they have to know what a diary is, and that's a legal conclusion. It's like instructing a jury. The jury is instructed that a diary means these things, and then the jury decides whether this thing is a diary under that set of definitions. That's, that's what Hager said. Hager said that it's, there's nothing inconsistent with the responsibility of the Court of International Trade to make this de novo. Isn't that
6: always what the, what the Court of International Trade does, is decide whether the item that is presented, there's no dispute in the facts about what the item is, whether it is the particular thing described in the rule. Isn't that what they always do? But they, to, to make that second step,
1: they have to know what the law is. And all, and what Hager said, and what we think is clear in in Chevron cases generally, is that in deciding what the law is, the court should defer to the agency's reasonable interpretations. It might be that I can make this clearer by focusing on the facts of this case, which would probably be useful in any event. In this case, the agency
3: said that- Mr. Jones, just before you get there, and in this picture of deference based on, among other things, expertise, Does the Federal Circuit, in the government's view, owe any deference to the Court of International Trade?
1: I believe the decisions of the Court of International Trade are reviewed like the decisions of a district
3: district court. court. And no special credit is given uh, to the specialization of the Court of International Trade. That's correct.
1: Uh, I mean, of course, to the extent that the Court of International Trade makes factual determinations, then... It's determinations. But
3: it would be just like a district court. It would be just like
1: a district court.
3: I'm going to finish your answer.
1: In this specific case. then we have a question. Go ahead. Okay. In this specific case, the agency, in our view, reasonably concluded that the definition of a diary, which the agency found from a dictionary to be.
6: I understand that, but what is it that the International Trade Court was supposed to do in this case? What, what, What did they have to do de novo? Just decide that that document, to decide what that document is what They're
1: supposed to decide whether the item that has been brought to them right. is it constitutes a, a bound diary, and in deciding whether it's a bound diary, they have to know what, the law, what that legal definition is of a bound diary. And in deciding that, they're supposed to look to the agency's interpretation, if it's a reasonable one. And the, again, I think I can make this more concrete by pointing out that the, here's, here's the way it worked in this case. The ruling said that a a diary is is a a book for the keeping of a record of daily events, Uh, and that that definition is broad enough to encompass the commercial usage of that term, which is a business diary, which has been commonly employed, and under cases like Stone and Downer, uh, the agency and the courts are supposed to consider in deciding what the terms of the tariff provisions mean. Now, what the Court of Appeals said was, well, we think that We want to add two things to that. We want to say it has to be room for extensive notations and it has to be retrospective. But the diary definition doesn't say that in the dictionary. Uh, There you can find alternative dictionary definitions, and the commercial usage is
0: inconsistent with that. Mr. Jones, why why, uh, why, uh, wouldn't a judgment that's made in the field, that that isn't, isn't appealed, but once it gets into court, presumably the agency at a high level, decides that this that this ruling made out in the field ought to be defended in court why doesn't that represent an official agency endorsement of that of that position made in the field it it, it is an official
1: agency position at that point the 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 problem i've had in, in giving a, an answer that's better on this for your from from your perspective is that i don't under I, I think that if 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 you look at the way these decisions are made at ports of entry and the way they're intended to be made at ports of entry, there is little in, in the face of that document that te- that gives a reasoned explanation of the agency's interpretation. By comparison, the headquarters rulings are thorough. They provide a, a definite description of the text. And, and internally, the agency has advised its, its regional offices to not include a full discussion of text. And, and 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 I'm going outside the record, but I have to answer your question. And internally, the the understanding is that if the issue is complicated enough, it will get referred to the headquarters. Now, that doesn't mean that complicated issues aren't resolved at the field offices, but it does mean that when the field offices ordinarily determine them, it's it's not with a deliberative explanation. To get that, you go to the headquarters.
7: Mr. Jones, I, I want to get clear on two points about the deference that the agency itself gives to these rulings. My two questions are these. First, with respect to the importer uh, for whom the ruling was given in the first place, is it correct that the government can always, in effect, uh, withdraw the ruling uh, as a precedent for future cases simply by telling the importer by letter or otherwise, you can't rely on this prior ruling. No. My second question is, would you explain what reliance someone other than the original importer can place on it? Well, the, the statute and regulations specify that before a ruling
1: that has been issued may be modified or overruled, public notice and comment, an opportunity to comment has to be given. That's in 1625C. Okay, C. so
7: they can't just withdraw it. They can't just it.
1: withdraw it. And even when they change it, For a period of 60 days, there's an automatic protection of of people who are using the old ruling. If I may reserve the balance of time for my... Very well, Mr. Jones. Mr. Call, am I pronouncing your name correctly? You are.
8: Mr. Chief Justice, it may please the court. I'd like to start by picking up on a question that uh, Justice Souter just asked, and that is, may it be revoked, may it be modified without further proceeding between the customs service and the importer. And at the time that these rulings issued, the answer to that is yes. There was no notice required. Is is the record reflects, in June of nineteen ninety-one, they re- classified this day planner as an unbound diary duty-free. In nineteen ninety-three, without notice, without any further proceeding, a letter was received from the Customs Service saying that that classification had been changed.
3: With no waiting period? No. So the the very day of the notice, it became dutyable?
8: We had had the opportunity, which we took advantage of, which was to get a detrimental reliance letter from the Customs Service that said to the effect that those imports that were in process, we were able to rely on the previous rule, on the previous classification ruling but that we could not rely in the future. So that the first revocation allowed us to take those orders that we had in process and bring them in duty-free. But thereafter, we now had duty attached.
7: Now, is there a different regulatory scheme in effect
8: today? There is now a notice provision that requires publication in the Customs Bulletin. Is that the one that set forth at page three of the government's brief? Uh, I don't have it by the page, if, Your Honor, but I believe it is. 19, it requires, USC
5: 1625. That's correct.
8: And it's reflected then in the, uh, in the in 19 CFR. But that was right. not in force in the case? It, it was not. It was not in force at that time. There was There's a second notice provision that has been raised by the government in its brief and that relates to change in practice. But this was not a change in practice either as the courts have defined that particular regulation. So that The importer here received a classification ruling in 1991. It was revoked in 1993 without further proceeding.
7: Now, with respect respect to uh, reliance by someone other than the original importer, as I recall the briefs, there was a difference of opinion between you and Mr. Jones on that, and I think his response to you was, Uh, that that that, uh, someone other than the original importer can rely unless notice is given by the government? Uh, Have have you resolved your difference on that?
8: Well, I I think it's uh, probably a matter of practice as much as it's a matter of the interpretation of the rules or the regulations. Under 19 CFR 177.9, it sets forth very clearly who may rely on a particular classification ruling. The importer may rely who has sought the classification ruling on that ruling for those goods in similar circumstances. That is who may definitely rely. Other importers may rely may, may but they are not certain that it is even in effect any longer because of the way the rule because of the way the service runs its classification rulings. And it says And this is where uh, the Solicitor General took me to task, I think, is that there's a second sentence that says, if you want to know what the current ruling is, you can contact us and, by the way, send us enough information so we can figure out what it is that may pertain to you.
7: So it is not. So they, if, in any case, they can get a, a prospective determination as long as they are on their toes.
8: I don't think it's a prospective determination. What they can get is a current status of how a particular good has been classified for a particular importer
7: at a given point in time. Well, Whether I, I, <clears throat> I should have the reg in front of me, and I don't. But does the does the reg say anything uh, about the reliance that may be placed upon a ruling once? The government has said yes. This ruling is still in effect.
8: No, okay. I don't believe it does. Okay. The, the, the problem here, as I see it, to ask for Chevron deference, which I view as mandatory controlling weight deference, rather than Skidmore deference.
2: Well, on that point, Mr. Call, this court had a, a holding in Nations Bank versus Variable Annuity Life Insurance where we held that a letter ruling by the Comptroller of the Currency, warranted Chevron deference. How is this different?
8: Well, I would focus on the question in that case as posed uh, by Justice Ginsburg, which said, may or can national banks in the United States sell variable annuities, Mm -hmm. question mark, And that was, as I understood that question, viewed by this court, that ruling was now going to be applicable to every national bank in the United States. And as I've just discussed...
2: Well, I suppose that we can assume that the Customs Service made clear that it thought that uh, anything like a filofax here, with the little uh, entry spaces on on pages in a loose-leaf binder, met the definition. Uh, Apparently, that was the idea.
8: I don't think we can assume that. I don't think we can assume that. The the problem is that, by definition, of the, the regulations of the service itself, these are... Applications of the customs law to the specific facts presented by the employee.
2: Well, uh, and would you concede that at least the customs has taken the position that a loose leaf ring binder is bound? I mean, they at least said that, apparently.
8: For purposes of 4820, I think we can. Okay. I don't know. What do you mean of 4820? The statute, I'm There's
2: sorry, a, statute a statute that of, refers uh, 19, to bound diaries.
8: 19 USA section
0: 4820. Well, but that's but that's all that we're talking about. I mean, that's in applying that to any other importer. Surely you you, you anticipated that the agency would take the same position. The agency can't say for one importer it it you know a, a ring binder is okay for another for another importer it isn't. I mean, once they make that ruling, don't you know that the agency has taken that position of law?
8: Well, we don't know that under the uh, particular section of 177.9 of their regulations because they tell us similar articles or identical articles in similar circumstances, and therefore they hedge that relative to every importer who comes to, who comes oh, to a comes Surely it
0: means similar relevant circumstances. You, 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 I, I, they can say, you know, you, you, you have blonde hair and, and the other guy had brown hair. You think that they'd say... Not similar circumstances?
8: I, I, I don't know. I suspect not, but I don't know. But but what we have here, just to, to look at the record, we start out in 1991 with an identi- the same product that we had in 1993 and that we had in 1994 when it made it to headquarters,
4: and their view changed. But the, te- the exact question, I think, is I could imagine it's all hypothetical, being a member of Congress. And if I were asked, do you really want the controller of the currency, to have some binding authority when he writes a letter answering the question that was posed. <clears throat> yeah, that's a pretty good idea. He, he knows quite a lot about these things. And then similarly, if you were a member of Congress, you might say, would you want these several thousand customs inspectors to have the authority of whether the word bound does or does not include these ring binders? Well, you might say, yeah, they know a lot about it. Similar answer. Now, there, there's a lot of confusion getting to whether you get a firm position, but if you get a firm position of the agency, you yeah, defer to that. Uh, th- that's the question. That's why I thought maybe your stronger point was the statute. Yeah. And, and I'd like to hear both the answer to that question and something about the statute.
8: Well, I'd like to, to, to go to what Congress may have said with regard to whether or not the Customs Service should be binding. And we looked to the legislative history in 1979 with regard to De Novo Review, And that legislative history said, in light of the Zenith radio case and and precedent that suggested that deference should be given to the Customs Service rulings.
4: On most of these things, Congress says nothing. What you're trying to do is make sense of some kind of statutory scheme. Looking at the scheme, would it make sense to give the power to make somewhat binding rulings under Chevron to this particular official in this kind of instance under these circumstances? That's how I'd look at it.
8: And and responding to that question, I believe the answer is no, that Skidmore deference would be appropriate, but Chevron deference would be inappropriate. I
0: understand. What what, what is the criterion uh, for for just just saying we're going to give deference to, you know, formally adopted regulations? I I can understand a criterion that... uh, tries to assess whether the agency's view that has been expressed is authoritative. But surely the agency's view on this issue has been authoritatively expressed in this case by by the Solicitor General. I mean, we we know that the agency believes that this is what the law says. Now, why should we give one sort of deference if, if the agency tells us that in a, in, a, in a regulation with notice and comment and another kind of deference, uh, deference if it comes to us in, in some other fashion. So long as it's the agency's authoritative view, what, what difference should it make? Well,
8: <clears throat> that question, as I, as I would understand, it starts from the premise that we're going to somehow narrow this field of classification rulings from the 10 to 15,000 that issue each year to some smaller group that purportedly are qualitatively better, certainly quantitatively less. And if that's the case, then I think we also need to not lose sight of the fact that these are mixed conclusions of fact and law, even when articulated. And, for example, in our particular ruling, the third ruling, the one that I assume the Solicitor General says that the deference to atta- should attach to, not the earlier ones, the last. There, the, the uh, Mr. Durant, who is was the, the fellow who exercised uh, that discretion, that uh, interpretation, who signed that letter, says that he has reached his interpretation on the basis of factual analysis, ex parte factual analysis, ex parte to anything that this importer had an opportunity to respond to. It says, and this is at uh, 32a uh, of uh, begins at the bottom of 31a, it's 32a in the petitions for the soare. And it says the rationale for this determination, was based on lexic- lexicographic sources as well as extrinsic evidence of how these types of articles are treated in the trade and commerce of the United States. Now, that oh, record does was made
3: that, does that get Does that get a presumption of deference, of, um, of correctness? That's the other piece of this statute, that the Court of International Trade is supposed to accord decisions of customs- a presumption of correctness is that right and that's that's, co- as,
8: as, uh, that's correct and it's as to facts and it and it's part of the process I mean this process you're getting
3: is, into the same problem that we had in discussing this with mr. Jones what is fact as opposed to law in these custom classifications
8: e- exactly uh, what well, we have here well, gee, is I
0: don't I don't think that you, you say it was based on lexicographic sources I, I assume he's talking about dictionaries. Now, I guess you can say it is a question of fact whether dictionaries say this or that. I mean, everything in the world is a question of fact. But when we issue a ruling on a point of law that relies in part on dictionaries, I don't consider that a mixed a ruling on a mixed question of fact and law. Did the dictionaries say this, and, 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 and is it accurate that, uh, that that produces this result? It, and the other one is extrinsic evidence of how these types of articles are treated in the trade and commerce of the United States. I mean, I, I don't... You know, if, if that is a factual question, it is a factual question of, of the generic type that, that we usually uh, uh, subsume under the under the term of judicial notice. I mean, what do what do people usually think of diaries as? You can call that a question of fact if you like, but my goodness, I, I think that's a, still a legal determination. Well,
8: I, I I beg to differ. I think it is a question of fact. The government, the as well as the importer trees, as a question of fact. on on the filing of the action in the the Court of International Trade. Both parties parties filed affidavits, affidavits relating to the facts, relating to commercial use, relating to commercial uh, jargon as to how these these products were described within the trade. And so both sides here treated that portion as being an item of fact. And I don't think that it makes much sense when we we talked Chevron Deference. We talk about the Hagar case, which says that Hagar stems, that deference stems from the creation of a legal norm to put to the court on a mandatory basis deference that has a mixed question of fact or a mixed conclusion of fact and law and say to them, now you may apply whatever that is to what remains of the fact.
0: Well, but that, that's a different point that you should be arguing then, not that all these rulings are, are, are not entitled to deference but rather that that the ruling in this case is not a ruling purely of law, but but it it involves factual matters and therefore should get, indeed, de novo review uh, if if it went to the Court of International Trade.
8: That goes to the second question that was certified, which is, as we approach it under Skidmore, does this have persuasive effect? the power to persuade. And we say it has
4: absolutely none
8: for any number of reasons. You
4: accept what Justice Scalia just said. I'm quite curious about that. Uh, That I thought the difference between this and Smiley is here there is a specific statute, and that statute says that the Court of International Trade will make its determinations de novo. Now, the government says that that word determinations means simply matters of fact not matters of whether, given agreement about the facts, this is a bound or unbound thing for purposes of the tariff. Uh, Is that, in other words, do you agree with what, he wasn't saying it particularly, but but, I mean, do you agree with that characterization that determinations cover only matters of fact? No. No. Why not?
8: Because I, I don't think that one can dissect even this, what, the Solicitor General would concede is as elaborate a classification ruling as one normally finds that one can dissect the fact from the law. So then, that is process. Hager,
5: then do you disagree with Hagar?
8: No, Hagar it, it is a... It sounds
5: to me like you're disagreeing with Hager in your answer to Justice Breyer.
8: Hagar is a much different situation, Your Honor. Hagar arose when Congress passed a, a particular provision of the tariff schedule that left the gap to be filled. And they they delegated that filling of the gap, a specific gap, to the Customs Service. It was matters incidental to Assembly outside of the United States. And it listed such as and left obvious gaps for filling. They went and on a notice and comment basis had a regulation promulgated that furthered that definition. I don't view it as interpretive. I view it as legislative. And that's what the what. The Customs Service did, and this court found that that created a normal law, similar to a statute.
5: Why didn't that constrain or modify or or, uh, elaborate the term de novo in the uh, Court of International Trade's jurisdictional standard just as much as this case does?
8: It impacted it in in a slightly different fashion. It impacted it in that there was no interpretation left of the law. The statute or the... the, the promulgation of the regulation, a notice and comment regulation, now told us this is what is or isn't incidental. Now we had the, the question that remained was what had occurred outside of the United States and did that fall within that language? So that now we were focused, as I understand this Court's direction, on that fact. What was happening outside the United States and does it fit into that articulated definition in the in the regulation mr. Kull, you,
2: let me approach this from a different uh, vantage point if we decide that we do owe Chevron difference to the position taken by the customs service in this case uh, do you lose is that the end of the matter
8: I no, because Why I would uh, I would take the position that the interpretation uh, at, at first blush uh, and upon further analysis, is uh,
2: unreasonable. Do you think the word "bound" is open to different uh, interpretations as to what's bound?
7: Yes. It's, and uh,
2: it's, so, is it open at all to the agency to decide that it includes um, these ring binders as being bound? I mean, that would be one possible interpretation.
8: That's one possible interpretation, and the question then becomes whether or not. If
2: if you apply Chevron deference, that's the end of the case for you.
8: Well, their interpretation is predicated upon one provision, an explanatory note that isn't applicable at that level of the tariff schedule, which doesn't relate to whether or not things are bound. It relates to what things are made of. The... Schedule this particular provision. This particular chapter 4820 relates to paper. And what this explanatory note says is, if things come with packaging that has metal, leather, etc., they will still be classified as paper. That the that the the other substance, the other material, will not predominate. Everything here in 4820 has to be held together in some fashion because the ch- chapter note says that these this provision does not cover loose sheets. So is, everything is has to Cole, be Paul,
3: there's one piece of this before we get to this application of it that I find vastly puzzling. Maybe there's an easy answer to it. We talked about the provision that says de novo review, but then you quickly said, and yes there's a presumption of correctness. Those two seem to be At loggerheads, why are they not? You told me that the facts found by customs get a presumption of correctness. On the other hand, the facts are gone over de novo.
8: It's it's a burden of proof issue, Your Honor. Uh, It's it's a matter that because there's a presumption of correctness, then the burden uh, is is slightly different on the the plaintiff, the, the importer, than it might otherwise be that he has a presumption that is working against him, and it's a matter of burden of proof. It doesn't relate to uh, deference. But, but focusing on Chapter 4820 uh, and why this is not appropriate uh, interpretation and would be unreasonable even under Chevron, though we don't believe Chevron applies, the statute is fairly clear. The statute tells us that there are diaries and there are similar articles and then breaks it down further to diaries bound and all these other items that would be similar articles.
7: But I had a little difficulty with your argument there. If if you turn to pages 17 and 18 of your brief, on on page 18 you make that argument. You say, in effect, diaries bound is to be contrasted with other. uh, and, And one reason that you say that... A diary does not fall, Uh, one reason that that, that you you, uh, say that this does not fall within the diary category is that it's it's not adapted for exhaustive recording of past events, it's a a schedule. But in the statute itself, which which you quote on on the preceding page on 17, uh, there there is the term In 4820.10.20, which you quote only with ellipsis, and that term refers to diaries. It also refers to notebooks and address books bound, which does not seem to carry uh, the same connotation. The notebooks and address books don't seem to carry any connotation one way or the other, uh, with respect to either recording past events or noting future schedules. Uh, if if we don't engage in the ellipsis that you did and we refer to these, these other examples as having some bearing on what a diary is, your your argument is considerably weaker, isn't it?
8: Well, I'm going to have to defer at this point in time to, uh, to, to customs practitioners who tell me that you cannot look in classification as to this product at those other two, either by way of combination uh, because that isn't the way the law gets interpreted in combination products exist elsewhere.
7: Well, I I assume that that they're they're not intending to, you know, to exclude the interpretive rule. You know, we we sort of know each term by those associated with it. And if if that interpretive canon applies... Uh, then there isn't a simple contrast between diaries and others. Uh, There's a contrast between diaries, notebooks, and address books and others, and notebooks and address books and others do not have the kind of connotation uh, that you want us to read so clearly in a diary.
8: Well, I think that we have to start at the top, because that's what the chapter notes tell us. The chapter notes tell us, and the chapter notes are statutory. And the chapter notes tell us that we have to start at 4820. We can't start at 48201020 or at 4810-40. Uh, we have to start at the top. And, and our argument is centered on the fact that it's diaries and similar articles.
7: Well, I, I understand point. your point there perfectly well, but by the same token, we can't ignore uh, 4848201020 either. Uh, And it seems to me that as the statute becomes progressively more detailed, it becomes progressively more indicative of what it may have in mind by similar articles. Uh, And it seems to me that by the ellipsis, as you quote 48, 10, 20 on page 18, uh, you are, in effect, telling us to ignore whatever interpretive value there might be to considering notebooks and address books. And that does have some interpretive value because notebooks and address books do not have a connotation of time past, time future in, in the sense that your argument assumed.
8: But we weren't classified as an address book, and we weren't classified as a notebook. We were classified as a bound diary, and the other two cannot support this classification this classification was very simply made and very simply stated. So not uh, say we ignore them. we ignore Yes. If the court has no further questions, then.
5: I th- ask you again about the statute that's quoted at page three of the government's brief, which, as I understand it, indicates that if a proposed interpreted ruling modifies an earlier rule, um, there has to be um, uh, a publication in the customs bulletin, correct now that is inapplicable to the case before
8: us right it didn't that 's part of what they refer in the customs bar as the mod act it was not in effect at the time that uh, we were uh, this ruling came down there's a second feature out there do you that relates give, to
5: do you do think it? that this, uh, this statute would be very important in another case in so far as whether or not Uh, these rulings should be accorded Chevron deference because they're very much like a regulation?
8: Uh,
5: Or do you think both cases, a case arising under this statute and your case, should be dealt with the same?
8: uh, I think it enhances part of their argument. It does not enhance their whole case because I believe that it does not enhance the particular point which is that these are conclusions of fact and law as to which one cannot dissect neatly those interpretive legal norms that would be required for Chevron deference. But in terms of process, in terms of notice, in terms of procedural regularity, it certainly is better than receiving a letter in the mail two years after you've gotten a classification ruling telling you that the classification ruling no longer
4: uh, is uh, effective. Thank you, Mr. Uh, Call. Uh, actually, I would, if you have an extra minute, I, it, it's all right. I'd, I'd like to go back one second on the word determinations. Yes. Uh The government has also argued, and I I wondered about this—that really we decided in Hagar that that word "determinations" must refer only to factual and not legal determinations. Uh, I'd like to know your response to that.
8: As I read the Hagar decision, uh, there was an argument made at that time that uh, Hagar, or the the class of the uh, regulation, An issue in Hagar was not entitled to Chevron deference. Uh, It was not entitled to any deference because of de novo review. Uh, We have a a legislative regulation there, and as I understand the court, the court was trying to explain how those two elements, a uh, statutory regulation that creates a legal norm, could still be uh, harmonized with the, the de novo review feature. And used as an example there, they could still be applied to the facts. We don't have that neat dissection. One can't surgically pull out the interpretive law from the fact in these types of classification rules.
1: Thank you, Mr. Call. Mr. Jones, you have two minutes remaining. Thank you. I think I have two points. Uh, Justice and in, in, as we understand the issue that you've been addressing, the court expressly confronted and resolved it in the Hager case. The court quoted the same provision of the statute that you're quoting and said that the responsibility of the Court of International Trade to make its determinations on the record before it meant that it was to assemble a record and make factual the determinations and apply those facts to the law. But in, the court said that uh, deference can be given to the regulations without impairing the authority of the court to make factual determinations and to apply those determinations to the law de novo. And what the court said in, in Hager was that, that the regulations, the interpretive regulations of the agency were part of the law that the Court of International Trade was to apply, which is our position uh, precisely in this case. I believe that I, I want to say one more thing about the uh, this deliberative conclusion point. Now, the the cases that have described that you look to the deliberative conclusion to to find in the interpretive ruling uh, to decide whether to give deference to the agency's reasonable conclusions involve rulings in particular. In Martin versus OSHRC, Occupational Safety Health Review Commission, the court applied the same principle of, of Chevron deference to an agency's citation uh, when the citation had been issued in the, precisely in the format that Congress authorized for interpretive purposes. So I think you may need to look to the nature of the, of the regulatory ruling, rulemaking program to decide, you know, what sort of specificity is required. Uh, but in the context of the Customs Service rulings, I think it's a practical matter. You're going to be looking at headquarters rulings that contain the deliberative analysis to find out what the agency's reasoned interpretation is. Thank you, Mr. Jones. The case is submitted.